Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, I want to go ahead and have you open up to a passage of Scripture in preparation of reading it together. It's going to be 2 Samuel chapter 11. Um, you're thinking, well, wait a second, that's not Acts. No, we'll be back in Acts in a couple weeks. Um, but the Lord has been putting this on my heart for a while because I think that in many ways we don't understand or we don't handle our sin well before the Lord in the way in which he has called us to handle it in a way that is in our best interest to handle it so that we can be purified from it, uh, restored fully in our relationship with God without obstacles, both to our relationship and our service to him. Um, and the way in which he can work in us the way he desires to working out that process of sanctification that he desires to work out in our lives. We if we're not doing the things that he has prescribed for us in handling our failings and handling our shortcomings and handling our sin, then we are hurting ourselves. We're hurting our Christian witness. We're hurting our relationship with the Lord. And we are hurting the effectiveness of the gospel ministry that's supposed to go, off, go out from us individually and us corporately as a church. And so I, I would ask that you would dig in with me here today. Nobody likes talking about sin. Raise your hand if you like talking about sin. Nobody likes talking about sin. If you go out and try to share the gospel, probably the most uncomfortable part of that conversation is not God loves you, Jesus died on the cross for your sin, not even Jesus rose from the dead. You'd think that would be the most uncomfortable, right? Because you're going to talk about a miracle. No, the most uncomfortable thing in talking with somebody about Jesus is saying, you're not really a good person. You mess up. You fall short. You have sinned. You desperately need God's salvation and forgiveness. That's uncomfortable. Once you come to faith in Jesus, the conversation does not become more comfortable although it should. And I think if we handle it rightly, um, we look forward to those moments when our honesty before the Lord and our sin becomes that moment of victory as he not only forgives us, but begins to purify us from these things that we have been ensnared to. So again, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I'm gonna go ahead and read it. And this is a longer passage, but I think it's very important that you have the context for this. Because we're going to be, as I read earlier, in Psalm 51 today. But I don't think you could understand or appreciate the depths of David's prayer as he's calling out for God's mercy in light of his sin without first understanding why he's calling out. What was David's failing? And I'm going to go ahead and preface this whole passage by saying this, that I'm pretty confident that most, if not all of us, in fact, I'll just go ahead and say, I don't think there's a single one of us in here who has ever committed sins at this level or probably ever would in our lives. And yet, God is calling out for God's mercy even in light of this. 
So for 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in the first verse, here's what it says. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, uh, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all the master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel, the ark and, Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab, in the city under, well, so, so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in, in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, These men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archer shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of your king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the, Lord, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. 
I know you're thinking, that's the end of a chapter. We gotta be done now. Take a deep breath. We press on. The Lord, said, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb uh, that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. Whew! I hope you'll forgive me a really long passage, but I believe a truly important one. Especially for understanding the context of what we're going to be taking a look at in just a moment. 
When you think about King David, when you think about you know, the list of heroes of the Bible and David's name makes his way onto the list, how often do you think of this terrible, terrible thing that he's done? When we talk about David uh, with our, our children, our, you know, whether it's Awana or our grandchildren, uh, how often does that pop into your mind? Because, and, and I think the reason why we don't tend to think about David in these terms, even though we're aware of the situation, is because God didn't just cast him out. God wasn't done with him at that point. In fact, even the Lord Jesus, who brings our salvation, is in the line of David. And you think about all that God has done in and through David. In fact, even after this event, David is referred to by God as a man after his own heart, after this event. And it begs the question, doesn't it? Because if we knew of a situation like this in our midst, wouldn't we burn with anger against David? Against even the fact that God would forgive David? Just in the same way that David burned with anger when Nathan the prophet shared that story of the rich man who stole the lamb from the poor man. And here's the reality of it. Yeah, there are sins that we can look at and say, that was, that's a huge sin, or that's a much bigger sin than anything I've committed, or even there's this, man, that person sins far more often than I do. But here's the reality of it, and one that we don't often think in these terms, that all sin, all our sin, matters to God. Every single one of them is an act of rebellion against the God that loved us, created us, redeemed us, and has poured out more blessings upon us, certainly that we deserve, but even more than we know. And what I want to draw our attention to today is David's response that we see in Psalm 51. Because I believe it's very instructive for us as we think through or as we navigate a world in which we are not yet made perfect and we continue to wrestle with sin of our own various kinds. And how are we to respond in light of this before the Lord? And so let me go ahead and just ask you to turn with me to Psalm 51. Are we there already? I don't hear the pages flipping in your Bibles. Ladies and gentlemen, I know I've read five weeks worth of scripture to you this morning already. Um, but that's important. And as we go to this, I want you to remember this. David is guilty of, of, of sinning against God, sinning against Bathsheba, sinning against Uriah, who was one of his Chiefs, one of his soldiers who's fought with him to secure the kingdom that he now rules. He has sinned against this child that had to die as a result of his sin. He's guilty of at least rape and murder. And yet this is what he calls out to the Lord for in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Friends, keep your finger there as we're going to be there for the remainder of our time together today. Why well, start with David? Why talk about David in terms of repentance and sin and what do we do when we sin? Because David's probably one of the greatest examples in terms of the magnitude of the sins that he committed. But what we see over and over through Scripture and what we know of in our lives is this, that sin is a reality for all of us, even as Christians, as we continue to walk in this life with the Lord and there's, there's, there's a reason for that. Here's what the reason is. Because while God has saved us, meaning that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead so that we could stand rightly before the Lord, right? He took all of our sin, all of the guilt for everything that we had done, past, present, and future, and it was paid for in full on the cross. And so we are justified if we have submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ and believed that Jesus died on the cross and rose again for the dead to secure our salvation, we have been saved. But we're also still being saved. What do I mean by that? I don't mean that that justification might go away. But what I mean is that that which God did for us in Jesus Christ, that which took effect in us, and for all of eternity, our name written in the book of life, if you will, when we put our faith and committed ourselves in Jesus, was the on-ramp. It was the beginning of the story. It was the beginning of our walk with the Lord. And he is still saving us each and every day. From what? He is saving us from the, the, the person we were before the person who died in Christ to the person that we're called to be. 
And so in a very real way, when we think about where we will be one day, that we are being conformed to the image of Christ, we look nothing like him now. When we think about, yeah, there are so many things in my past that God has helped me to overcome, but I'm looking ahead and there is just a mountain of garbage in my life that still needs to go. When we think about the fact that God has not finished the work because I can't seem to go a single day, sometimes it seems like a single hour without doing something that's contrary to the will of God, we recognize that we desperately need God's continual salvation. And he's doing that in our lives. He is doing that to the extent that we invite him in to do that work in our lives. He's helping us to set, up, set us apart from sin and setting us apart unto himself through this process of sanctification. And the rubber meets the road when it comes to how do we deal with sin in our lives. And I think typically Christians have two different responses to sin in their lives. The one is this, it's apathy. It's, it's a little sin. God knows me. He made me, right? Uh, we make light of, perhaps, our sin. Maybe, it's th- maybe our sin is things we do. Maybe it's things we think that nobody knows. Maybe it's what we say, how we say it, to whom we say it. Um, maybe it's not even actions, words, or deeds, but it's lack of action. Maybe it's knowing the good we ought to do, but not doing it. Um, maybe it's not even being cognizant of God, never mind worshiping him or serving him as we go through our lives or throughout our days. Maybe there's whole days we don't even pray. Maybe there's whole days we don't even consider God's word. There are a host of sins that are present in the life of Christians. And there's many times when we treat these sins as if they're not important, as if they're minor. Maybe David's sin is grand enough that he has to deal with it, but mine, what does God really care? That's the one way in which we wrongly uh, deal with sin. Here's the other way that we can often wrongly deal with sin. That, That sin is just far too great. God can't forgive that. Or, I need to clean this up before I could come back to God. I know I'm just doing this thing, or I'm thinking this thing, or this thing just happened, and I just, me and God are not on speaking terms, and, and I'm just, I'm going to deal with this, and then I'll come back at some point in the future. I think that there are many people even in our community who don't go to our church or another church anymore because they're in one of these seasons of life where they just feel like they've walked too many steps away from God and God doesn't want anything to do with them. There are literally people who have come here to this church on Easter and Christmas and the joke in the doorway is this, be careful, you know, the the ceiling may fall in now that you've walked in as if God doesn't want you back because of X, Y, So on the one hand, sometimes our wrong way we deal with sin is by making too light of it. Other times we use it as an obstacle or we think of it as an obstacle that somehow God doesn't want us in his relationship anymore. And the thing about it is that both of these reactions to sin in our lives misunderstands how sin works and what God expects us to do when we sin. And here's David. 
rape, and murder from the man who held the highest office appointed by God himself, anointed as king over Israel. And he sins in this way. And he comes to the Lord. And here's the first thing we think, maybe. How presumptuous that you think God would forgive you for that. But why does David go to God in this moment? How can he pray this prayer? Because he knows who God is. He knows what God will do. He knows he doesn't deserve it. But he knows the nature and the character of God and what he expects when we fall. He says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions and wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Boy, that's a big ask. How can he ask God? Because God has demonstrated over and over again throughout history, and even in David's own life, that he is a God of forgiveness and restoration. And so he calls on him to have mercy on him. What is mercy? Mercy is not dealing with you according to what you deserve, not meeting out the consequences, the punishment, the judgment that you deserve. And David knew that he deserved it. But he asked that the God of forgiveness extend forgiveness even to him. He goes on in verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. This is, this is not a flippant, Hey God, I sinned again. Would you forgive me? Thanks. Amen. I've been guilty of this. Have you been guilty of this? That moment comes. You recognize you just did something wrong. You're like, sorry, Lord. And you know what? That is such, it's better not even to pray than to say that. Here's what we see throughout this psalm. And I think it's important for us to recognize this. And I truly believe that this was genuine in David's crying out to the Lord in this moment. There's this process that we go through when we sin. There's this process of repentance, if you will, and, and this, this journey toward restoration with God that takes place. And here's, here's how it starts. It starts with conviction, right? Have you experienced the Lord's conviction? You know, God convicts us in various ways. He gave all of us a conscience. We don't do a great job listening to it. Our conscience is usually there to keep us from doing the thing, um, but it also reminds us after we've done the thing that we've done wrong. Right? God has given all of humanity a conscience, whether we listen to it or not. But as Christians, God has also given us the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin, makes us aware of how we've fallen short of what God has called us to, as makes us aware of our guilt. And so the first is a recognition of that conviction, because I'll tell you that we can easily push it down and not think about it. It's that still small voice that we can either regard or turn away from and distract ourselves with other noise. And so the first step is recognizing that conviction. I believe as we've just read, David is calling out. He recognizes what he has done. There's a moment in 2 Samuel as we read that when he responds to Nathan and he realizes, I have sinned against the Lord. He should have known that. I don't think, he, I don't think it was gone from his mind that rape and murder is... Clearly, sin against the Lord. But it's in that moment that it strikes him 
That his sin was not something he was going to get away with, no matter what happened. That his sin was not just against Bathsheba or Uriah. That his sin was against the God who has loved him and raised him up for nothing, from nothing and given him everything. And even here he cries out, Against you, you only have I sinned and done evil. What is evil in your sight? He's not saying that I didn't sin against these other people, Bathsheba, Uriah, the child, uh, Joab, who had to put his soldier on the front line to die. He knows he sinned against those people. But there's this moment of conviction when he recognizes that his sin was against the God who loved him and has done everything for him. And we need to embrace that when it comes into our lives, this moment where God is shining a light and we could either run for the darkness in the corner or we could walk into God's light. That comes with remorse. That's why that prayer, <laughs> I did it again. I'm sorry, Lord. Amen. It's not a prayer. It's not a prayer we ought to be praying because we need to let it hit us. We need to let that conviction, that shine in the light, we need to stop for a minute and stand in that light and recognize the weight of what just happened. Not because God wants to send out his lightning bolt, but because redemption, reconciliation doesn't happen unless we accept that conviction and it leads us to a remorse for transgressing God's law, God's goodness, God's instruction, God's expectations, what God calls us to, his will. And it leads to confession. What is David doing here but pouring out his heart in confession? And here's what else it comes with. A desire for repentance. I asked this question at Sunday school. What is repentance? And we had a couple different answers. We were on the right track. I would, here's, here's what somebody said in Sunday school. I think this is a good, good description. Repentance is doing a 180 from that sin or that sin pattern uh, in your life. So you're turning away from sin and you're turning toward God. You're turning away from lawlessness and you're turning toward God's requirements. You're turning away from my will and you're turning toward God's will. It is a complete 180 from the thing that you know was a sin against the Lord. And but here's the thing, the beautiful thing about it. That, remember that group of people I told you about? The ones who, when sin happens, it just serves as obstacles. You know, oh, I got to get myself right before I come back to Jesus. Or he's not going to forgive me as I am. Right? Well, here's the truth of the matter. That that impulse to fix ourselves, to get it right, to repent... I don't think you and I have that capacity. I think for us, we must have the desire, the true, genuine desire, the desperate desire to repent. And in that, God honors that by giving us the capacity to repent. Listen to David's words in verse 7 and following. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Here he's talking about forgiveness of the sins he's committed. But then he goes on in verse 10. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. What is he saying? This heart that is so desperately broken, so prone to sin, so prone to walking away from you and following after my will, Lord, change it. 
Create a new heart in me. And that steadfast spirit, that stability, that, that consistency of staying in your will and doing what you want that I've clearly walked away from. Lord, renew that in me. Give me the ability again to follow you and do your will and to not walk off in sin doing my will instead. And so we see his desire, but we also see the expectation that for things to change, for David, who's capable, apparently, of rape and murder, for him to be able to not ever even have the impulse to do that again, but to live a life redeemed, to be able to do what God has called him to do for the remainder of his life, it starts with this desperate desire for God to renew him, to purify him, and for God to do his part in doing that. You know, we see this in the New Testament too. In 1 John 1, 9, John is writing to Christians. And here's the instruction he gives them. He's writing about sin and he's talking to Christians. And so it's, there's an understanding that Christians sin. And here's what we do when we do sin. He says this in 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Hear what he's saying. The same thing we're talking about, the same thing we see David doing here. That he knows that it comes with a conviction, it comes with remorse, it comes with confession. If we confess, if our sins that have been revealed in the light, if we don't go hide into the, the corners, but we bring it before the Lord, if we confess, he's faithful and he's just, and he will forgive us, but he'll also purify us. He'll take our desire to repent and give us the capacity to repent. He'll take those things that were patterns in our life that were sins that we just kept tripping on, and he'll give us victory in those areas so that we don't fall over them any longer. God gives us the, the capacity to repent. He goes on, I want to jump down here to verse 13 because this seems so, this is what we do. You might think, oh, David, look at what you did. But look what he's saying. He says, Lord, if you do this, okay, if you, give, if, you, if you forgive me, if you restore me, if you purify me, give me the capacity to repent and not do these things any longer. Here's what he says in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Why? How can we say that? Friends, you know that for a long time I've been preaching evangelism more often than not, right? Well, we've been going through Acts, but also because I'm hoping that we can shift the culture of our church to being a church that not only does life together well, but also does on mission together well. And all of this focus, do you know what we do when we proclaim the good news? We don't just go and say, hey, God did this and Jesus some 2,000 years ago and it's applicable to you. We go as ambassadors who have also been saved by that good news, right? We go saying, I know the wretched, despicable, evil, wicked, terrible person I was. And God forgave me anyway. Because he loved me so much that he was willing to put 
all the debt, all the penalty, all the consequence for my actions, thoughts, and deeds on Jesus so that I could stand rightly before him, not because of anything I've done, but because of what he's done. And you know what? That same grace he extends to you right now in this moment. What is David saying? He's saying a very true fact that, Lord, I'm lifting up this prayer, not presumptuously, but knowing the nature and the character of who you are and what you've called me to. Lord, I'm asking for your forgiveness, but I'm asking even more that you will restore me with the ability to be able to live for you well for the remainder of my days. And Lord, that grace that you have extended to me, I can't help but talk about it. And there are others, Lord, that are far from you. There are others that are living life not according to your will. There are others, Lord, who have fallen far from you and they just can't seem to find the way back. And I am not just a person with words, but a life that's been transformed by your grace. And I'm going to go and tell people of the mercy and the grace you've extended to me. And they are going to experience it in their own lives as a result. This is what David is saying. This is what all of us are called to. Not just that time, however many years or decades ago, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, but in every moment, in today, in every day, when God demonstrates his grace by forgiving our sins and continuing that work of sanctification, purifying us, making us more and more into the image of Jesus as he's saving us each and every day, he adds to our testimony to go and tell others that they too can be saved. Friends, all of us sin. I don't know what your particular brand of sin is, um, but all of us do it. And we will until Jesus comes back. Now you might say, I don't sin as much as I used to. And I hope that's true. That's, that's actually the point, right? Um, if we're walking in this process of recognizing his conviction, of feeling that remorse, of lifting it up to him in the light, bringing confession before the Lord, deeply desiring his, the ability to repent and receiving that from him, then guess what? You are not going, you're going to be better each and every day that this happens. The journey will move you forward. But none of us have arrived. And you know what? Those journeys of sanctification look a whole lot smoother when we deal rightly with our sin, recognizing the nature and character of God. He's not done with us. He's not going to cast us out. He's not going to, oh, your salvation's gone. Oof, never should have saved you to begin with. What was I thinking? Oy vey. He's the God of the Jews. So, you know, oy vey, right? Sorry, that's terrible. Um, but friends, he is a God who loves you and desires your redemption, your restoration. He sent Jesus to die a terrible death in our place. There is no greater act of love than that. If you doubt for a moment God's love for you, then go back and read those passion narratives as Jesus died in your place. You will not have any doubt at that moment. He has done it all so that we can be redeemed. So whether our sins seem small or too large for our relationship with God, I encourage you to slow down, recognize that conviction, let it hit you, bring it before the Lord, desire that he change you, 
and he will honor that in your life.